Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast, for clarity, and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. And I was involved in the siege at Melbourne University. I was. In fact, I was the I was the voice on the radio. Um, there was a radio station called Radio Three DR that was set up an illegal radio station, which which was in so, itself a rather terrifying thing to do, because that that contravened the um, broadcasting act, and that actually had very serious penalties. And just before we were about to go on air. Somebody told me what these penalties were and they were like, I don't know, 10 years jail and a huge fine. <laughs> and I sort of went on and I had no idea what to say. So they just went, right, you live to air now. And, the, you know, and I started speaking and I said something like, hello, this is Radio Resistance 3DR and we're trying to give power to the people. <laughs> University students were, perhaps unsurprisingly, heavily involved in protesting against both the Vietnam War and National Service. There were three universities in Melbourne at this time whose students had significant involvement in the protest movement. Each of them has their own episode. There's the University of Melbourne, which was established in 1853 and has gone up and down in terms of radicalism over time. That's the subject of this episode. There's also Monash University, established in 1958, and it gets two episodes because there's one particular issue some students there got involved in, which I think warrants its own episode. There's also La Trobe University, which was established in 1967. Before anyone gets up in arms, yes, there are two other significant tertiary institutions in Melbourne at this time. They don't get their own episodes here because I could find very little information about the involvement of their students in protesting. I'm going to briefly discuss what I could find now before getting into Melbourne University. The Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology or RMIT, was named that in 1960 after starting life as the Working Men's College in 1887. Their student paper from 1968 until 1972 was called Catalyst. 
I've had the chance to look through most of the issues of Catalyst, thanks to the State Library of Victoria Archives. The editorial staff were overwhelmingly male. There were many articles about the war and conscription. Most of them are unsigned, but presumably they were mostly written by men because that's who was on staff. There is a May 1968 article about a sit-in at some government buildings which mentions the involvement, indeed the arrest, of some women. It's unclear from the article if these were RMIT students, but the author was Sue Bell, a second-year art student. Later, in 1970, there's an article about a talk given at the newly formed Labour Club. The article is written by Sue Bond, and it's unclear whether she's a journalist or a member of the new club. That's about it from RMIT's student body in terms of women, as far as I can discover. The other significant tertiary institution at this time was Swinburne University. It was originally the Eastern Suburbs Technical College when it was established in 1908, and then became Swinburne Technical College from 1913. It was still that, in our period, becoming Swinburne University in 1992. The student paper at Swinburne was called SCRAG. Again, thanks to the State Library of Victoria, I've managed to look at many of the issues from our period. And again, like RMIT, I found that few women wrote for it in this period. Given the time and the fact that it was a technical college, this may well reflect the student population overall. The paper doesn't seem to have been quite as concerned with external politics as the student papers, particularly at Melbourne and Monash universities, were. That said, the 1970 issue definitely encourages men not to register for national service. In the lead-up to the first moratorium in 1970, a female student named Margaret Haste wrote a letter to the paper including lines such as, quote, How does Mum explain to little Jimmy that although his Christian society tells him it is wrong to kill, any man who tries to follow that ethic is clapped in jail? End quote. A couple of months later, the paper includes an open letter from staff that, quote, encouraged and enticed students not to register. Of the 21 staff who signed, at least seven are women, with another eight represented only by initials, so possibly more women signed. A few months after that, the issue of Scrag from 11th of March 1971 notes that the people who signed that letter actually went to court because they were legally committing an offence by encouraging men not to register for national service. Now to Melbourne University. I'm going to present these events and experiences chronologically. In this episode, you'll hear from Sue, Francis, Diana, Erica and Elizabeth. These women were born between 1948 and 1950, so they're in their teens and early 20s throughout the Vietnam War era. The Melbourne University student newspaper 
was and still is called Farago. I've had the opportunity to look through most of the issues from the period 1966 through to 1972 because Melbourne University still has them in the journal area of the Bailey Library, which I know pretty well because it's the university I attended. I would call Farago a pretty political paper. It concerned itself with a wide variety of issues, both internal to the campus and external, and both the Vietnam War and conscription feature prominently. Clearly, we could have a discussion about student activism not necessarily representing the opinions of the student body more generally, and that may well be true. However, in 1966, the Student Representative Council, or SRC, decided to hold what Farago called a referendum on campus. The results are reported in the September 23rd issue. The headline on the front page reads, SRC Acts on Vietnam Poll Results. And the article states that the SRC voted 13 to 7 to participate in the No Conscripts to Vietnam protest. An analysis of the results of the referendum later in the paper states that, quote, less than one in five students support, quote, even broadly, the government's policy of sending national servicemen to Vietnam. It's important to note here the very specific issue being raised. The issue isn't the war, but the use of conscripts. The paper claims that about 25% of students were surveyed and about 80% of those actually returned a completed survey. Bundled together, about 80% of the student respondents favoured limited conscription. So it's not a blanket disapproval, but it's certainly against what the government was doing at the time. This gives us some context for how the university body as a whole was feeling at this early stage. Later in 1966, on the 5th of October, there's a demonstration against sending conscripts to Vietnam. Farago reports that, quote, 500 earnest Melbourne University students marched in that protest. The accompanying photo shows a couple of women in the ranks of the protesters, and women students are involved in all of the protest from this point on. One of the key players at Melbourne University from 1967 onwards was Frances Newell. Here, she talks about how and why she got involved with the protest movement. She mentions Jonathan Mursky, who was an American academic involved at this time in criticising the American involvement in Vietnam. She also mentions Michael Hamill Green and Harry Van Moorst, both of whom are also significant student leaders of the protest movement. Francis and Michael actually married during this period. Towards the end, Francis also discusses Holsworthy Barracks, which is an army barracks in New South Wales where some conscientious objectors were imprisoned. So in 1966, that was my first year at Melbourne Uni, and I attended the LBJ demo, uh, but I, I wasn't involved in organising it. But it was after that, the next year, that I set up the Pacifist Society at Melbourne Uni. 
And through the Pacifist Society, did you help to organise demonstrations or was that more about mm, education and talking to like-minded people? In July of that of 67, when um, I invited Jonathan Mursky to come to the university, that was an education focus. But because it had such a deep impact on me in the sense of getting um, a first-hand account of what was happening in Vietnam, I then decided we needed to... Um, research this issue of civilian casualties because I believed that if we did that research, we could communicate it and that it wouldn't be acceptable to the broader Australian population. So that was my initial thinking. I understand that you were involved in some other um, groups or societies as well. I think you were involved in the Students for a Democratic Society. Is that right? Okay. So what I've been discussing is 1967, mm-hmm. uh, setting up the Civilian Casualties Study Group. And when we set up that group, somebody at the meeting where we set it up, suggested that I contact Michael Hamill Green, that he had already done some research on Vietnam. So I did that and uh, he joined that civilian casualties study group. And Harry Van Morse was also in the Pacifist Society at that time. But by early 68, SDS was being established, so I was very early on involved in SDS. When you say involved, does that mean that you were helping to um, decide what events should happen or were you writing leaflets and those sorts of things? Well, both of those things. So uh, I was very involved in debates about strategy and tactics So at the beginning of 68, that was around how to respond to the fact that Dennis O'Donnell and Simon Townsend and Des Philipson were in Holsworthy. So, you know, the question was what to do about it, how to respond. Um, And so I was part of that thinking that came up with the idea of going up to Holsworthy and occupying the space outside the Holdsworthy barracks, uh, but also in the discussion about, you know, whether people were would get arrested or were prepared to get arrested, um, what to do if one was arrested, all of those things were debates that I was involved in at that time. The threat of arrest, was that a very real and present thing you were considering? Yeah. I was very much involved in that whole discussion of civil disobedience as a a way of approaching opposing the war, civil disobedience involving getting arrested. Um, so, yes, it was certainly, certainly very much at the centre of our thinking that if we 
organise these obstructive events, then we would be arrested, yeah. As is the case in the broader community, student activism really ramps up from 1968 onwards. In May of 1968, Farago has a lengthy article from a member of the Draft Resistance Movement explaining why 21 people ended up being arrested for a protest. In 1969, the March 14th issue's front page has a headline proclaiming, Awaiting This Call. The article explains that five members of the Students for a Democratic Society are, quote, waiting for cops to burst into the, onto the Melbourne campus and drag them off to jail, end quote. That article goes on to explain that the five expected arrest for refusing to pay fines for distributing leaflets in the city. This action defied the Melbourne City Council Bylaw 418, which officially prevented the distribution of leaflets on Melbourne streets. Of that five, Frances Newell is the only woman, and she's the only one who is physically described as, quote, a blonde-haired pacifist. On the other hand, for three of the men, we're told what they're studying. Later in that same issue in 1969, in a letter to the editor, nine people sign a letter explaining the problem of Bylaw 418. Of those nine, uh, one is Francis, and the other woman is Diana Crundon, who was one of my first interviews. When we first started protesting in the streets of the city of Melbourne, there was a bylaw. Heard of that? Yes. Bylaw 418. We'd get pinged for handing out the leaflets and we'd be... Were we arrested? I don't know. Actually arrested or... I think we might have been. But I, I remember once, once, handing myself in... <laughs> for unpaid fines because the police were wanting me and that was rather hilarious because I just spent the time in the watch house. It was meant to be, you know, but it was overnight or something and the, the sergeant who was in charge of looking after me was very concerned that I was there. <laughs> this young woman in the yeah, watch house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, those sorts of things went on. So you mentioned that you had fines. Did you end up with a lot of fines? Not, not a huge number, <laughs> no, because we won the bylaw 418. As soon as that happened, mm. all our fines would have been expunged. So. May 1969 saw Helen Clark write a letter to the editor of Farago explaining why there is a group called the NLF Aid Committee on campus and the fact that they are attempting to raise money to send to the NLF, that's the National Liberation Front, a group in South Vietnam against whom Australian soldiers were fighting at this time. This effort was connected to a Monash University campaign doing the same thing and it will be explored in greater depth in another episode. The fact that this letter is written by a woman is really interesting because one of the things that stands out in looking through Farago is the lack of female authorship at all, let alone issues to do with Vietnam. One of the few exceptions is Erica Feller, who was the news editor of Farago for 1969. 
And then I, I did a fair bit of journalism at the university. I mean, I studied law, but I also studied, studied arts. I did a combined degree. And I was the news editor of the university newspaper, Melbourne University newspaper, Farago. And it was under, at the time, the editor was Henry Rosenblum, who you may know, he's, he's quite, he has his own publishing house now, and he's quite, uh, quite eminent in that area. But Henry was always, you know, encouraging the university newspaper to pick up causes outside, not just what was happening with the SRC Student Representative Council or the union building or whatever, but really, so we were encouraged to go out and report these things. And I, a lot of the demonstrations that I attended, I attended actually on behalf of Farago, writing it up. And, you know, you'll see, I mean, if you ever go back into the history of, of Farago and some of the articles, one I used to keep with me for a while because it was just funny. The headline was Fella at the Demo. As the principal uh, principal headline, I can remember some quite violent demonstrations actually just on the corner of Commercial Road and and St Kilda Road where they had police horses breaking them up and tear gas and so it was it was quite active. But a lot of my activity came from yeah belief in what I was reporting, but also enthusiastically being the news editor and wanting the Farago to cover these sorts of stories. Why why was it important that Farago cover it? Was it simply because there were so many students who were involved in them? Well, I mean, the university has traditionally always been, I don't know if it still is, with everybody working and holding down jobs and only going to the campus for tutorials and things. But in those days, it was, you know, you, you were at the university full time and it was always a place where there were a lot of, you know, demonstrate a, 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 a sort of sense of social justice and an enthusiastic taking up of social justice causes. So for me, it was important that the um, that the university newspaper was reflective of this aspect of university life. And if I, I mean, I can't I can't remember the conversations, but I'm sure I had many with Henry, and I'm sure that was pretty much his view as well. In looking through Farago, I found Erica's article, the one entitled "Feller at the Demo," from the 11th of July, 1969. I assume it's about a protest organised at the American consulate, which is something that will be discussed in more detail in an episode about Monash University. Later in 1969, the front page of Farago on the 6th of October has a list of names of students and staff who had signed a document urging young men not to register for national service. In doing so, to quote the article, they have made themselves liable to a fine of $200 and or 12 months jail. There are 92 signatories on this document. By my count, 33 are female names, while 10 are identified by initials alone. A third being female seems like a significant number. This is also a time when protesting is really starting to ramp up. Around the country, there's a suggestion that a nationwide multi-group protest should be organised, which eventually becomes the 1970 moratorium movement. 
There's increasing involvement at Melbourne University here as well in late 1969. For instance, I've found reference to a War Resisters International group existing at Melbourne at this time. Membership and mailing lists from June 69 include, from my count, 12 women and 27 men. War Resisters International had a paper called Aquarius, which Frances Newell, or Frances Hamill Green as she was sometimes known at the time, was involved in. Records suggest that she actually contributed her own money towards printing costs, and she was certainly a liaison in terms of getting it out beyond the university. 1969 is also when Elizabeth Jackson got to university. Did you feel like there was a strong push to be anti-war at at university on the campus? Yes, I mean, the, the left-wing clubs and so on were quite strong. Did you get involved in any of them? Or were um, not really. I was sort of nominally a member of the Labor Club, but I was still too young and nervous to... <laughs> and there was this organisation called the SDS. Harry Van Horst, who I noticed has just died, he was a leading figure in that. So I sort of buzzed around the edges of that. But I, I, mean, I was just very shy and lacking in confidence at that time. So... I didn't get deeply involved. And yet you went along to demonstrations. Oh, yes. That, that yes. seems to me like the sort of thing that someone who's shy wouldn't automatically oh, do. I did, yeah, 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 yeah. I would go with family or friends, yeah. In the lead-up to the moratorium in May 1970, Farago ran a sort of vox populi bit about the moratorium. Two female students, quoted as being in favour of a moratorium in general, although one isn't convinced that it will be effective. A couple of weeks after that issue, there's quite a lot of coverage of the moratorium, which happened on the 8th of May, although nothing that mentions women specifically. A piece by Frances Newell is published on July the 17th, an article entitled Australian Anti-War Students in Saigon, which reports on the experiences of of five Australian students, including her husband and draft resistor, Michael Hamill Green. A couple of weeks after that, in an article entitled City Anti-Draft Demonstration, there's an image of a Melbourne University student named Susan Day being dragged out of the general post office by post office security. And another photo shows at least one woman involved in sitting down as part of the post office protest. Women are also shown in the pictures from the second moratorium, which was held in September 1970. The last really significant event to occur at Melbourne University was the 1971 siege of the Student Union Building. Farrago reported on the events on September the 30th, but doesn't specifically mention any women. Both Frances Newell and Sue McCulloch were present. Uh, but also participating in things like the siege at Melbourne University. So what happened there was, so that was September 1971. I was working, but Michael was underground. Both Jenny Walpole from the share house and myself took part in the siege. So... It was announced that draft resistors would be at Melbourne University at that time. There was, uh, and that they, the draft resistors set up a base on the second floor of the Melbourne University Student Union, and then other students mobilised to make that 
part of the union inaccessible by barricading the stairs, etc. So I was upstairs on the second floor and must have been there one day and one night. I think it was the second night that Julie Ingleby, another wonderful woman activist, also no longer alive, unfortunately. She was there as well. And in the early hours of the morning, maybe about five or six, she said, um, they're coming because she'd been watching out the window. And so, you know, we all jumped out of our sleeping bags and ran, ran to the window. And so I could see the police, um, the Commonwealth police, a whole phalanx of them coming across the um, lawn from the architecture building to the student union. So then, you know, this, the draft ministers disappeared into their pre-arranged hidey holes and myself and the others went and joined the barricades at the top of the staircase. And I just remember sitting there for what seemed like hours, um, linking arms with Jenny um, and, you know, singing We Shall Not Be Moved and other such songs. So, um, but I, of course, knew that Michael was hiding and all the time had to maintain a, a, a appearance of calm and not let on about what, what I actually knew was going on. So, again, a very intense experience. And I was involved in the siege at Melbourne University. It surprised everybody, really, what it turned into. It was the idea was to again to kind of embarrass the the law enforcement agencies and the government by bringing attention to the fact that there were people who felt very strongly about about conscription and the war. And the idea was to to hold a kind of public demonstration. Um, in which four of the draft resistors would appear and then be supposedly smuggled out of the building where they were to appear. But in fact, what happened was that they appeared at the, at the, at the Melbourne University Student Union and then there were, it was decided to kind of barricade ourselves in so that I think they could make media appearances and there was this huge, it went on for several days and we basically took over the union, the student union. And by the time the police arrived in a kind of classic manoeuvre, I suppose, they did a dawn raid, I think maybe thinking they could catch people unawares. But by this stage, we barricaded ourselves in with chairs that went up and down the you know, completely blocked the stair the stairway of the several floors and the draft resistors were not out of the building. They were in fact still in the building, hidden behind a very thin partition wall. There was a false wall that was discovered in one of the union rooms upstairs. And they were actually in the building when the police charged in and eventually got their got their way up through this maze of chairs. <laughs> And, and came into the room where they were supposed to be and uh, there was nobody there. But in fact, they were, they were only, you know, like a few centimetres away and they said, 
you know, they had to be very careful not to cough or not to <laughs> alert anybody to the to them. And then eventually they were sort of smuggled out sometime, uh, I think progressively sometime after that. You were in the, in the Union House for the entire siege? Yes, yes. I was. In fact, I was the I was the voice on the radio. Um, there was a radio station called Radio Three DR that was set up, an illegal radio station, which which was in so, itself a rather terrifying thing to do, because that that contravened the um, broadcasting act, and that actually had very serious penalties. And just before we were about to go on air, somebody told me what these penalties were, and they were like, I don't know, ten years jail and a huge fine. <laughs> And I sort of went on, and I had no idea what to say. So they just went, right, you live to air now. And, the, you know, and I started speaking, and I said something like, hello, this is Radio Resistance 3DR, and we're trying to give power to the people. <laughs> and I think I sounded quite terrified because I was just, I'd just been told of, you know, what we might be facing if we were caught. There was a, there was a bloke who, who, who produced that, or who made that, um, radio transmitter was on the ABC a few years ago on 7.30 report I think was trying to I think he was trying to sell the transmitter or say you know what can we do with it that little bit of the recording was, was broadcast on, on the 7.30 report and I thought oh my god there's me sounding terrified <laughs> The involvement of women from Melbourne University was not particularly well recorded by the student paper of the day, but it's clear from my interviews that women were involved and were significant. I asked most of my interviewees whether they thought the involvement of women was important for the roles they played or for their presence, and many of them reflected on women in the movement in general, and I'll save those comments for a later episode. But I'll finish this episode with comments from Erica Feller and Diana Crundon, who had quite different experiences and perspectives. I'm interested in thinking about sort of women's involvement in general. Um, thinking back about uh, the other people you knew who were involved, was your sense that there were a lot of female students involved in protesting as well as male students? I don't think I have any sense about that one way or the other, uh, there were obviously female students involved. But my, because much of my studies were studies in areas that were essentially male-dominated at the time, like law, for example, most of my university friends were guys. And they were them. And then, and then Farago, there was a lot of men rather than women on Farago and so you know my my um, I don't know I'm trying to think I, I, I really don't have an impression of whether there were large numbers of women if you're asking me did you did I was I part of groups of women who went on demonstrations am I aware of it I, I can't say I was. Overall do you feel like women had an important role to play in the movement like had you not been there do you think it would oh, have been different absolutely mm. i mean we there's so much work to do getting posters up and handing out leaflets and yeah. all of those things and you were doing a lot of that yeah, yeah yeah 
So yes, it would have, it did make a difference. In fact, I think it was central, really. Mm. You know, a lot of the men were fly-by-nights, whereas the women were there and stuck with it. And... Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. Thank you.